This episode of the Policy Viz podcast is brought to you by Partner Hero. Partner Hero provides customer service outsourcing that's built for the needs of small businesses and high growth startups. So if you've ever needed help with your data visualization work the way I do, sometimes I need someone to help me scrape some data or make a graph or edit a blog post, I use Partner Hero. They have flexible terms. They can help you scale quickly. There's quality assurance baked into every product and every program. And they have offices around the world, which can also help you with different languages and different nuance in your writing or your visualizations. So if you're ready to bring an outside customer support to help your startup that feels like it's part of your existing team, check out Partner Hero. Head on over to partnerhero.com slash policyviz to book a free consultation with their solutions team. Mention you heard about Partner Hero from PolicyViz and they'll waive the setup fee. Welcome back to the Policy Viz Podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. Happy New Year, everybody. I hope you had a great New Year, a great holiday. Uh, glad to have you back listening to the show for another great set of episodes. I'm gonna take you all the way through June of this year. I've got a whole set of great guests coming your way to kick off the new year. I'm really excited to bring you the authors of the new book, Functional Aesthetics for Data Visualization, Vidya Settler from Tableau and Bridget Cogley. Um, we talked for a while. I won't lie to you, when I get folks to come on the show, I say, yeah, we're gonna chat for 25 or 30 minutes. And then we have a little bit of a chat before we actually start recording, make sure we're all on board of what we're gonna talk about and the topics and sort of have a list of questions we're ready to do. And we were chatting for a while before we recorded this and then we recorded and I just, I couldn't stop. It was just, the conversation was so great. I think Vidya and Bridget are onto something with this book, sort of moving the data visualization field into the next stage of its evolution. Um, obviously, a lot of my writing is on you know, best practices and step-by-steps and introductory pieces, but there is a need and there is a market for that next phase of the field. How do we sort of think about data visualization less as here's a chart, go read it, here's a bar chart, see if you can get it in five seconds, to thinking about the next form of data visualization as a language, not just as visual icons or that sort of content. So. Vidya, Bridget and I talk for almost an hour in this, but I think it's a great conversation. I think you're gonna really enjoy it. So again, happy new year. I hope you'll enjoy this first episode of the Policy Viz podcast of 2023. So here's my conversation with Bridget and Vidya. Hi Vidya, hi Bridget. Good morning, early for you, Vidya, right? Hi, yeah, it's, it's 7.40, it's not too bad. But you're already at the office and like ready to go. So, yeah, um, looking forward to this. So it's a pretty good start. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm going to, for folks who are watching the video, I'm going to hold up your new book, Functional Aesthetics. Um, great new book. Love it. I've already ruined it with all of my writing and my tags and folded pages and everything. I think it's great. I want to dive into a few sections of it. Um, but I thought we'd start with just introductions. Um, maybe just tell folks, you know, who you are and where you're working. And, and and then we can talk about how you two got hooked up. You tell the story in the book, but maybe we'll give a preview for folks. And then we can talk about some, some content. Um, so Vidya, do you want to start? Yeah. Um, well, thanks for having me here. Um, I 
I'm the director of Tableau Research. I have been at Tableau for 10 years. Uh, I lead a really awesome team of interdisciplinary research scientists in the areas of data visualization, multimodal interaction, applied ML, and NLP. Um, I got a PhD in computer graphics and NLP in 2005 from Northwestern. And um, I was at Nokia Research seven years before I joined Tableau. I'll also just add, she writes a lot of papers and collaborates on a lot of papers. So she's really good at bringing together these teams of, you know, people that wouldn't necessarily normally collaborate. She's like, hey, let's work on this. <laughs> and, you know, I've gotten to be a part of it once, which is really right. neat. So Yeah, and hopefully they'll be I'm Bridget Cogley, and I'm the Chief Visualization Officer at, over at Versalytics. I'm also the co-founder, and then I am a Tableau Hall of Fame visionary. So I'm old enough in Tableau world to be retired, or at least <laughs> semi-retired and put out to the pasture as far as like recognition goes. Um, I started kind of using Tableau itself back in 2010, and before that did a lot of analysis in Excel, and then I started my career path as an American Sign Language interpreter. So... When you read the book, I'm the practitioner voice in that book, whereas Vidya is the researcher. And really, you know, together we come up with a lot of these spitball theories where it's like, well, I think this thing is true. Right. And you have this model in the book that I want to get to that that tries to piece these together. But maybe we could start with how you two got together and teamed up to actually write this book. So it started with a Tableau user group over in Wisconsin. And so they reached out to me and said, hey, you know, and I was doing this logic of dashboards talk, which was my whole, you know, how do you build dashboards kind of with a logical frame in mind? And we were doing kind of a, a two-tug tour in Wisconsin. So we started out in Miss Madison, and then the next day we're due to, you know, show up in Milwaukee. And mm -hmm. they had mentioned video was going to be there. And they were like, well, we're trying to figure out transport and stuff. I'm like, well, she can just ride with us because, mm -hmm. you know, we drove our teeny tiny Fiat all the way out there because this is what we do. It's the Midwest for us. And so it's like, right. you know, you just get in your car, you drive, you, you know, just however go. many hours and what do you do? And so, you know, we get there. And what was really cool is video went first and she presented and I was just watching her talk. And I mean, I can remember vividly getting chills because I was like, this is the missing piece to my talk, you know, because I was really going from a semantic lens of like, you know, you think about describing a room and how do you do that? And, you know, calling out where people miss certain features of it or they don't do certain things grammatically, whereas in American Sign Language, there is actually a grammatical convention to how you describe a room. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Vidya, you, you definitely need to add to this. Yeah, for sure. Um, it was my first tug, you know, Tableau user group. So I, I really didn't know what to expect. And my talk was not a traditional data viz talk. Um, so I had stuff on semantics and user intent. And I had a Stroop effect exercise, which we talk about in the book, just, um, you know, showing people how our brain works and how, you know, if information does not align with or semantically align with how we see the world, you know, our, our brain starts playing games with us. And um, so it was sort of this hands-on, you, know, you know, participatory exercise. And so I did my thing and, and then Bridget came up and, and she had this like lovely picture um, that kind of, instigated the the need for creating not only beautiful dashboards but something meaningful and all of a sudden for me I was like wow this is this is such a beautiful segue from what I 
uh, presented to what she's doing. And uh, yeah, you know, she was gracious enough to take me uh, in their little Fiat car to, um, <laughs> to Milwaukee. Yes, and I, I want you to picture this. So my husband's driving because I'm lazy. And then I'm in the passenger seat. And then Vidya yes. is behind my husband. Her suitcase is in the back. And I swear, she's like <laughs> packed in, in there. a little teeny tiny <laughs> sardine because it's a Fiat. It is tiny. And she is happy as a clam back there. I mean, she's just smiling and great. Whereas I would just be like, ugh. But yeah. she's totally happy. And we talk the whole time. Talk the whole time, and uh, yeah, I, I feel I feel bad for uh, Mike, but you know he, he was he was a good sport. Um, <laughs> but I I will say that in addition to the similarities of the way we thought about data visualization, we also bonded over food. I mean, I can't. Which you is not. the most important part. Let's be real. Uh, obviously, so absolutely. We're, right. we're both vegetarian. We both love Indian food, and we started searching, you know, on Google Maps where is the closest Indian restaurant to go to, and and that and that was the whole premise of that book cover, right? There's like this map of all the Indian restaurants. Oh. And that's our conversation thread um, above above the the Fiat car, and we're mm-hmm. making a. To- and I just want to point out, like these are actual Indian restaurants. Yeah. Like this is real. This is yeah. not. This like, is like the just- e- this is like the Easter egg in the book. This it is. This is yeah. the hidden Easter yeah. egg. If you get the story behind the cover, and that's why it's like it's not a traditional data viz cover. Like they kept coming back to us with like these real yeah. you know, futuristic da- the, the the dashboard samples you always see. Yeah, right. It, it's the Pix Bay. It's the Unsplash. Yeah. You go there and you yeah. buy like the five dashboard templates that they have. Yeah. yeah. And we really wanted a lot of personality and we wanted to kind of just showcase the journey. And so it's like, we're just going to do this. So it's a very metaphorical data viz without being a data viz. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and in this, was- in this, in this car, in this car trip journey, did you, at the end of that, I don't know, what is it, an hour and a half between Madison and Milwaukee, something like that. At the end, were you both like, were you like, we need to team up on something? We don't know what it is. Do we need to like, like, where were you? Where did you end up at the end of that, that weekend? So we were going to, we, we chatted back and forth and then it's like, well, we should do a 2020 talk together. And so mm-hmm. we were really working. Tableau, we were also thinking about the Tableau um, conference. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Right. Right. And then, and then the pandemic happened and the conference really didn't happen. Right. Um, I'm trying to recall the exact set of events that happened, but yeah, go ahead. It started the talk and then we kept having more content and more content. So we shared this outline and it's like, well, we should just do a book. Mm-hmm. And I love Vidya for this because she's got some hustle. She's like, okay, you know, we're putting together the book proposal. She's hitting publishers left and right. And I mean, she's just on it. Just on it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the story there was we, we formed a social bubble with my son and his, you know, his friends and their parents. And we all went to Lake Tahoe and we mm-hmm. stayed in this huge house. This was all before we were all vaccinated. Right. And, you know, the world was falling apart and I was like, okay, what's the worst that can happen? Um, so wrote up uh, a book proposal based on the content that Bridget and I had come up with for our original talk and then just sent it to like publishers, various publishers all over. And we were like, okay, let's wait and watch. And then within a few days, we started getting responses from these publishers and we're like, whoa, okay, this is actually Mm -hmm. happening. It's real. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's exciting. 
Um, so let's talk about content in the book, because in that story, you both use the word semantics. And so I want to start there. So can you and maybe, I don't know, I'll, I'll try to pick people so that we're not over talking. So we'll start with Bridget, maybe. C- can you define for folks what you mean by semantics as it applies to data visualization? So semantics is the study of how we draw meaning in communication. And the whole premise of my initial talk is dashboards are a form of communication. A lot of times we think we're making a thing or we're making a widget and they're really communicating. And so that's a part of it. And Vidya, I want you to chime in on this as well, because like we really went kind of back and forth. Um, and what I find is that most people are focused on the perceptual side of this, that this is, you know, a perceptual creation. And it's like, no, 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 no. There is so much semantic resonance. And, you know, when video showed the Stroop effect, it's like, that's the thing I've been running up against. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have a word for it. I just knew that every time if I used the color over and over and over again, or if I used, if I crossed the wire, if you will, on color, it got really confusing. And I kind of found this little secret sauce where if I did certain things with color, it worked extraordinarily well to, you know, an effect that I couldn't explain. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so that is the formal meaning. Um, And what we try to explain in the book is, you know, as humans, we are trying to make sense of the world, right? We're trying to figure out what things mean, um, what do people imply by saying something, doing something, seeing something. And semantics is a way of just formalizing that notion of meaning, right? Mm -hmm. And we often do this in various forms of communication. And this is also, I think, one common thread that Bridget and I share, where she comes from the American Sign Language point of view, and there is a certain type of uh, rhetoric uh, that goes on with respect to communication, but there's also communication in the form of language that uh, arises from my background in in natural language processing. And so we really wanted to impress on the reader that um, visualizations are a form of language used for communication. And there is a set of practices, you know, some of them are, you know, taught through design because, you know, when you think about graphics design, we are taught how to emphasize what is most important and de-emphasize what is less important. Um, and so we we kind of took that notion, which primarily resided in the area of perception and design and brought in uh, semantics and understanding user intent, which is a way of expressing your goal when you're looking at information. So we could provide a deeper understanding of how visualizations work because they are not just a simple graph, right? Mm-hmm. They, they contain a message and they're trying to communicate something to us. And how do we actually use that form of communication to get people to take action? And yeah. so that was kind of where we were going with the book. Right. And I really like that, you know, Vidya introduced this idea of analytical conversation. And you see, you think about how we converse back and forth, both with ourselves. So we, we start this initial pass with the data as an analyst where we have a conversation with the data. And that happens at a very intimate register. We're, we're digging into it, we're exploring it, and we have a bunch of shortcuts because it's only us in that conversation. So we can really embed a lot of that shortcut information where we understand what we're saying, but nobody else does. Mm-hmm. The challenge is then when we take that intimate conversation and we try to present it to the world and we don't put in the affordances to make other people able to understand it and navigate it, they struggle. 
And in the book, we highlight this in part, it's the paper towel problem. It's like you have this great experience at a restaurant. You go to the bathroom and this is like a huge problem for me. You wave your hands in front of that cute little paper towel machine and you don't get any bloody paper towels. And then then you, you sit there and you do all these antics to get paper towels and it finally spits out like maybe an inch or two of paper. You pull <laughs> yeah. on it, you're wiping your fingertips, and then you do what I do, which is the toddler thing, you wipe it on your pants. Yeah. Yep. And it's just like, and then, you know, here you are in this nice restaurant with wet pants. And it's like, yeah, that's elegant. But we do this to our users all the time in that, you know, our intent is we want them to do a certain thing. We want people to use less paper towels, but we still want them to have paper towels. It's just that mm-hmm. the signals get mixed up. And the wrong thing happens. And that's, you know, we have that intimate conversation when we're exploring the data. We don't put out enough exposition to the users to truly follow the conversation, nor do we do it in a cohesive manner. I mean, it ends up like charts on a page, which makes sense to us because we have the verbal linkages that they do not. Right. Do you think that's just human behavior that we just get so deep into, in this case, our data? that we just forget that our user hasn't been neck deep in the data for six months the way we have? I'm actually going to push on that a little bit where it's we've not been trained in data viz mm. to expose the information. You think about children go to school, they learn an essay writing template. They learn mm-hmm. all these ways to expose information. That's a literate society. And mm-hmm. we are entrenched in a literate society. You cannot go anywhere without seeing something in writing. You see signs, you see you know, all sorts of things, even in my car, you know, I have all sorts of stuff that's writing, you know, written. And it's really, really hard to navigate the world if you can't read extraordinarily. Yeah. And with data visualization, this is another competency skill. So we've got a graphic where we talk about like numeracy as the basis, then literacy, and then this is the third tier. And so I Mm -hmm. constantly mention, you know, data visualization is the third tier because it's not just, okay, we're getting information from it but it's becoming a primary source of information. We are actually learning directly from the chart, i.e. COVID, where we are starting to see case trends. We're starting to see a lot more visualization incorporated often as the lead in a news story rather than the supplement. So that is the primary way of getting the information. I I, I do also want to add that, um, you know, with data visualization, rightfully so, it started... Um, by helping people understand how our human visual system works and what are some core perceptual principles that come into play. Um, You know, explaining, for example, when a bar chart should be used or, um, you know, when a pie chart can be used um, or like stack bars may not be good for comparing values. Um, So we have been taught some of the do's and don'ts from a perception standpoint, Mm -hmm. but that's kind of where the message has just been. And we wanted to take that to the next level because there are some higher order cognitive processes that go into play, including thinking about dashboards and communication as a conversation. And, And so that goes beyond just the sheer perceptual qualities of a chart, because you know, now barring paper, most visualizations are interactive, right? There is this back and forth. And so how does a person, how does a user who is interacting with a dashboard that an author has spent time on 
you know, walk away with some mental model of understanding what the data is about. And that mm. happens through that back and forth interaction that tends to not be expressed as clearly when you just stay in the layer of perception. Mm-hmm. And that's also where I kind of channel Marshall McLuhan a little bit because the medium ends up the message. And so when you've got interactive dashboards, that's a very different message than something delivered on paper. It transforms how we communicate. It transforms the ways in which I can communicate. So if I'm printing on paper, that one chart really needs to suffice. If I'm building out an interactive dashboard, I can actually split the task among several charts. And so that's where I don't often need to try to make this really complicated nested chart. I mm-hmm. can split that task up and let people dig into that and drill into that and get that in a very different manner. Right. So you've both mentioned different types of modeling and, and thinking of, of ways to sort of maybe structure or formalize the way that we create and then ultimately consume uh, data visualizations. So I wanted to ask about this model that you have in the book that is sort of a, almost the through line. It's a sort of conceptual and visual model that sort of comes through in this in this triangle. Um, and I don't want to describe it. I want to let, let you all describe it. But I thought we maybe, Bridget, you could start with... Uh, this model and how people can think of implementing that into their own process of creating their own visualizations, but also working with their colleagues and their teams. Because I think that's the other piece that I really pull out of this book is that, yeah, you could go off and work on your own, but there is a part of this that requires a team. And if you have these different elements and think about it in that way, you can ultimately be more successful. So one of the figures we have in the book is kind of, it's a pseudo triangle is really what it ends up being. And it represents to me the shift. So you start learning charts and it's a very elementary, just as Vidya had talked about, you know, these are the types of charts you have. Here's your library of charts. And it's a very pictorial representation. And to me, this is when you think about learning to read, you've got Dr. Seuss, you've got a lot of these very elementary books that, you know, supplement with pictures. And it's, it's that pictorial learning stage. And so you start learning kind of these real basic graphics and these real basic words. And that's the pictorial stage. And usually as a practitioner, when you're in that stage, it feels overwhelming because it is. You are often trying to operate at a much higher level than you truly have the skills for. And I know because I was there. You know, it was really intimidating. And then you get all the books and there's a lot of resources, as you've mentioned, Um, to learn, you know, quote unquote, how to do it right, how to refine, how to reduce, how to remove. And that ends up being that perceptual stage. And Vidya, you hit on this as well. And I'll let you expand further on it. But then we start shifting into where it's like, we've done this, you know, drastic shift. And so you actually see literally that pendulum shift from pictorial to, you know, perceptual. But then there's this other shift that happens, and that's where we propose that instead of trying to move back and forth, what you actually do is you move up to a higher plane, mm-hmm. and that's that semantic phase. And so then, you know, the graphic kind of draws down, and it's fuzzy. I mean, it's a really fuzzy kind of graphic intentionally. And then you finally wrap around everything with intent. And this is particularly, video. you can really talk about this because that's where a lot of your work lies. Yeah. Um, I mean, Bridget, you succinctly described our model. Um, What is kind of interesting with the semantic layer is there is this spectrum of very concrete concepts, Hmm. um, which I think uh, someone who has been doing data visualization, even for a few years, can understand or grok. Um, But there's also these fuzzy notions of um, 
language that need to be expressed through visualizations. Like if I am looking at a neighborhood of houses in Seattle and I want to, you know, look for the best house to buy, what does best mean? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the author who creates the dashboard might have their own mental model of what best means, but best could mean very different things for even the three of us, right? Is it a good mm-hmm. walking score? Is it proximity to restaurants? Is it a good school district? Um, so that is where, you know, intentionality comes into play. Like, what is the goal of this visualization? Um, what sort of audience does it need to reach? And what is the audience's goals in terms of how they want to consume and interact with a visualization or a dashboard to meet their needs? And there needs to be a way to embrace that fuzziness um, in semantics where there's either clear directive and, you know, we might get into this topic of using text with charts because I think text is a very effective way of um, either enriching visual communication or it could be, it could exist on its own, you know, kind of going back to what Bridget alluded to with the medium as the message, you know, we are exploring other types of, um, you know, media beyond just the traditional dashboard. And so mm-hmm. other forms of communication might come into bear. And that is why, you know, intentionality is sort of the glue that helps the author with certain directives in terms of how the dashboard needs to be crafted to meet a certain goal, and also provides guidelines or scaffolds to the user or the interactor so that they understand what the goal of that dashboard might be. Mm-hmm. And what was really neat about this whole process is I was able to draw in interpreting models. And you think that you've got language transfer and, you know, how does this relate to data visualization? But it really, really does. Because, you know, to me, I see my work not as, you know, oh, this is so different from interpreting, but I'm actually interpreting from data to charts. I'm rendering a message that somebody else is designed to, you know, take. And that takes into account you know, where it's happening. So where is this message occurring? You know, when it's interpreting, it's occurring at a doctor's office or, you know, maybe in a court of law. When I'm doing data visualization, it may be occurring at a business where I'm giving this to, a, you know, in a high level executive, or mm-hmm. maybe this is on a flat panel screen where people are walking by it daily. All of that informs how I create that message. So that setting and that kind of place matters. And then you've got tone. You know, what is the intent or the tone of this? And you really want to set that mood. And we really care a lot about that. Mm -hmm. And you can do that by color. You can do that by arrangement. There's all these. And that was my logic of dashboards talk was really, you know, how do you create that mood? How do you create that message? You know, and that also affects, you know, looking at, am I putting this on a telephone? You know, and so I'm, you know, scrolling this way and that affects interactivity. So, you know, am I using a mouse where I've got a lot more, refined clicking space or am I using my finger where it's actually a really kind of fuzzy, not mm-hmm. very specific space. Right. All of that takes, you know, has to be taken into account. Yeah. You have both um, so far used terms like evolution, the next tier um, kind of looking ahead. And I wanted to ask that your book along with some others that are either just out or coming out, you know, Nigel Holmes has a book that I think just came out. Jen Christensen has a book that's on its way. Um, These books feel like they are the next evolution 
uh, or the next tier of the data visualization book, the visualization library, as it were. There are and always will be the needs for the intro books, for the, the grammar, the language, right? Like we need punctuation. So where's the right spot and then how do you push the boundaries? But, um, and maybe Vidya, we'll start with you. Like, do you view this book as that next evolution? I don't want to say next level because that's not really fair, right. but next evolution in the, in the data viz library, the data viz field. Yeah, I think there's there are few levels or layers of uh, you know data visualization that we're trying to pull on. First of all, at least from my standpoint, um, data visualization is no longer a field just for academia. You know, I, I come from research, and we often get into you know let's run a perceptual experiment to assess how useful this chart is, and I'm not trying to discount that's that it's not important, you know, it's absolutely important, but it's not just that. And we have reached a point where there is so much of wealth of knowledge that practitioners have brought into the field um, with Bridget and so many more, you know, I've seen this, you know, particularly with the Tableau community that I, I have been part of. And there hasn't really been much effort in trying to bridge the two worlds. I feel like, you know, the academic community and the practitioner community, we do talk and care about similar stuff. We just have different ways of expressing it. And there are kind of different sides to that same coin, so to speak. And so we wanted this book to sort of bridge those two worlds together, where we come together on these common topics and we share these different perspectives. So that was, I think, the first step, because I I feel like there's a lot of books that are either skewed more towards the practice side or more towards the research side. And so we wanted to help bridge that. Um, And then the second aspect is, um, yes, I mean, perception is just one form of that equation, right? There's like obvious questions that people need to understand. You know, how do you actually discern? Uh, different magnitudes of values, compare different values. When is a bar chart more you know, effective than a pie chart or vice yeah. versa? But to us, I think the most interesting set of questions is when we actually think of visualizations as a form of communication. And with our kind of diverse backgrounds that both really consider visualizations as a form of communication, we really wanted to bring to bear that it's a language. And yes, the punctuation is important, but let's not stop there. Let's mm-hmm. let's try to come up with ways in which we can string words and phrases together and come up with actual sentences that help assign meaning to what we see and how do we use icons and colors and have and, and really paint a very deep understanding of how visualizations work. And we have also moved to a place um, where we are, you know, thinking of other forms of seeing and understanding data. And it's not just, you know, through visual form, you know, we have chatbots, we have Slack and Microsoft Teams where people are asking questions. And, you know, sometimes you may not need a chart, you may need text or a different type of modality to bring insights to people. So we really want people to kind of understand the the breadth and depth of the field and provide some, you know, some sneak peek into where the field is heading towards um, as Mm -hmm. we share in the latter parts of the book. Yeah. 
And, and I want to pull on a couple of threads there because there's, you know, a broader data representation that we're starting to hit into. And, you know, I've, I've seen that term kind of mentioned by a few other people as well. So it's not my term. So don't. But, you know, when you think about data sonification, when you think about physicalization and just being able to represent data in a myriad of ways. I mean, some of this is really, really old. We've done this for countless mm-hmm. of millennia. Right. But then some of this is really, really new. And so, you know, intersecting a little bit with that to me is also part of the conversation. I do want to go back a little bit where um, video was talking about kind of research and practice. And what I found for me, it's like, you know, in the practitioner community base, we're always looking at, you know, research as proof. Like, well, I yeah. did this thing and I want proof. And yeah. so we see research as that definitive proof. And what was really cool is I was, you know, we were talking one time and working on a chapter and it's like, for video, it's like when something from research rolls out into practice, that is proof. And it was just yeah. like this light bulb moment for me. Like we really are two sides of that coin. And that was the beauty in working together is really being able to kind of see these things come together and really see how they play together. And then what's been really fun for me, at least, is seeing the research projects that come from the book. Mm-hmm. So, you know, mm-hmm. we've written this book. We already did one research into text and charts. And, you know, I, and it came initially from something I thought was throwaway. You know, we had talked about this. I put a segment in the text and charts kind of chapter just about over texting. And a lot of times what we do is we divorce the text from the visual. So you have this, you know, huge long paragraph and then Mm -hmm. a chart and they're separated and it's not really useful. And so you just have this big block of text and a chart and they're not really playing together. And so, yeah. you know, we broke it up and we had an example where you could see the text in the chart. And then when we did the research, we really didn't find that there was a, a limit to the text. I mean, we were using line charts and I do think that that has a potential effect, but we were, you know, testing how much annotation could we put on this thing before people said it's too cluttered. And we never hit that point. It was I would say we were modest. Yeah, there was yeah. there was no notion of overtexting when we actually did the research, which was kind of interesting. Yeah. Okay, so I want to make two points and then move on to another question. So first is I would be remiss if I didn't mention the VizCom workshop, uh, which is one of the IEEE workshops um, that is trying to do this bridging. So I'll, I'll I'll put that in the show notes for people who want to check it out. But but there is I think there is this clear movement to try to bridge the gaps. And and Bridget, to your to your point you just made, I mean this is a point that I talked about with all of my people I work with and all my clients. I mean, it is funny to me when I talk to people about, let's make your chart title more active. You know, let's tell the story, the argument in the chart title. And they'll say, you know, especially government folks, they'll say, well, we can't do that because we'll be deemed as being partisan or not being objective. And I'll say, okay, yeah, I I get that. Let's not do that. But let's see what you wrote about it in the report. And Bridget, just like you just said, like 99 times out of 100, 999 times out of 1,000, the sentence in the report in the text is the argument. And then they move on to the next thing. And there's still this separation, I think, between the visual and the text, which is amazing to me. It doesn't surprise me at all, because we actually have this exact same problem with interpreting. It's like, oh, well, but I'm not in the room. It's like, no, you really are. And there's this Mm. whole model from interpreting called demand control schema. And what it does is it acknowledges your impact on the message. And so you're not this neutral party. The whole myth of neutrality is just that. It's a myth. It's yeah. a story we like to tell ourselves and console ourselves that, oh, it's it's our way of exiting harm and it's not. And so you're an active participant in crafting that message. And regardless of who you are, you're in the room. And typically neutrality is only afforded to certain types of people. 
And mm-hmm. that's the other thing that we're not necessarily discussing. But, you know, you are an active participant and you are shaping that analysis. And in the interpreting world, you're responsible for crafting a message that people understand. I can remember very early in my career when I was still an interpreting student, I was sitting with a friend of mine, an interpreter came in to interpret for him. And she was explaining to him that they were going to do tests to figure out whether the tumor he had was malignant or benign. And she spelled those two words. She literally spelled malignant or benign. And mm-hmm. when she left the room, he looked at me and said, what did she say? And mm-hmm. I had to tell my friend, we don't know if you have cancer or not, but she, you know, they're going to do tests and find out. Right. And that's what we do with data visualization all the time. We take no ownership of the message. We simply pass through and we do a disservice to our users because yeah. we're not helping distill that message. I mean, that is the goal. Yeah. Okay. So on text. So I want to read this for, for listeners because I think this might be my favorite sentence from the whole book. So, so this is in kind of towards the beginning. So, okay. So you both write, charts are not intuitively read. Instead, consumers rely on outside narration, expanded supplemental text, and numeracy to navigate what the visualization shows. I mean, I think this is so important and, and so great. And I want to give you just, I mean, I don't even know if I have a question here other than maybe my question is, do you think that when people say a chart should be instantly understood or like the three second rule, I'm going to guess you both think that that's not true. I mean, I, I don't think it's true because of the this exact point about text. So I don't really have a broader question here other than to just give you a chance to talk about the importance of text. You've already mentioned a little bit. So maybe we'll start with Bridget. I see you're like, you're raring to go on this, on this question. I, I, yeah. It's, you see the toddler <laughs> bouncing back and forth. So I, I've got a, a few things to say about that. So yeah. charts to me are like classifiers. And in English, a classifier word is a word like bundle. So if I talk about a bundle, you have no clue what I'm talking about. You know, I'm talking about a conglomerate of things, but you know, it could be a bundle of wood. It could be a bundle of software. It could be a bundle of books and you have no context for what it is. Mm-hmm. Charts are a tool for expressing data, and we fill them with intent, and we use perception to help guide users through it. But you know, you have to have the words to convey what that thing is. You have to have the numbers to really provide a sense of scale. Yeah. And so that's where, you know, to me, charts are a form of classifiers. And I can take that one step further. You know, American Sign Language, we have these classifiers where it's like I can take a car and I'll make this what I call a three hand shape. My thumb, index, and middle finger are all three out while the other two are closed. And I can drive this thing around. And I can either, if it's a car, I have to tell you it's a car and provide some context that, you know, if it's bouncing up and down, maybe I'm on hills. Mm-hmm. But if I just do this by itself, it's not meaningful. I have to tell you this is a car or a helicopter for it to have meaning. Mm. And so that's, that's kind of part one. The, the three second rule. I have a lot of probably personal rants about that because (laughs) our communication isn't that efficient. And, you know, we have this, you know, and that's where you end up to me in bar chart hell, where everything is a bar chart because that's the fastest thing to understand. Mm -hmm. But, you know, back to kind of the thinking fast and slow methodology, you want to have people be able to dig in and have that deep dive. You want to be able to unfurl information. And when you think about text expositions, we're not just writing five word sentences all the time. You have to vary your sentence length. You have to give people something interesting to chew on. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's kind of my, my quick version of the rant. And Vidya, please feel free to chime in. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in the research community, 
I would say that visualizations are often contrasted with alternative forms of representation, like tabular forms or written descriptions. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in reality, most charts are displayed with some accompanying charts, whether it's titles, annotations, or captions, right? Um, and so there has been a, a, an actual push um, within the research community that text should be considered co-equal to visualizations. And, um, you know, calling on researchers to devote more attention to readability and how do you actually integrate both text and charts in terms of their takeaways, you know, users' takeaways. And so there's been kind of growing body of work that explores that role of text that plays in visual analysis. And in fact, there have been studies that have shown that um, users don't always prefer charts, you know, especially in chatbots, they actually just prefer text. Um, Mm -hmm. And and with modalities like voice, I mean, there's no form factor that affords for any sort of visual display. And so coming up with really pithy ways of sharing insights of, about the data becomes very pertinent uh, when the modality is not conducive for any sort of elaborate visual representation. Yeah. Which also intersects with accessibility. I mean, That's right. You know, you know, making sure that when, you know, people are using screen readers, they're getting an equivalent message. And this is another area where we've historically fallen flat. Um, So, you know, it's that modality. And the more you kind of think multimodal, the more inclusive you make that message. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's inclusive for everybody. And uh, yeah, so I think accessibility is one big piece. And then our technology has been moving towards, you know, automated or semi-automated data narratives um, that, you know, either accompany these charts or they're just shared with readers on a, a you know regular basis. Um, so, you know, textual description has shown to be pretty influential um, with respect to these visual components, and that's why we decided to have a chapter dedicated just for text and charts. And as Bridget mentioned, um, it, you know, a, we had a paper that was uh, presented at the IEEE Visualization Conference that really goes into further understanding um, when is text preferred over charts and how do the various semantic levels of text um, influence both the reader's takeaway of what they're getting away from the from the data, but also their own preferences. You know, is it text just describing statistical features in the chart all the way to higher level takeaways? Um, so it's, it's a very interesting field. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like we need to pay more attention to text because it is a first-class citizen. And what was really interesting about that paper is we found that certain levels of text worked better in certain locations. So it's like if you're making a very general statement, that's a great place for a headline. Mm-hmm. If you're starting to know, you know, physical notes about the trend, so it's like it's trending up or this is a peak or and you're talking about what transpired, it's best to do that in place. And to me, this really aligns well with American Sign Language. If I'm talking about certain things, I'm going to tightly reference. So that deictic referencing, I'm making a space for it. I'm pointing. I'm using a lot of close and space behaviors of this incident right here. And Mm -hmm. all of that helps foster that communication. I want to hammer one point about text a little further. And that is that, you know, I had a couple of conversations on Twitter somewhat recently around, you know, I don't have success deploying scatterplots is what I saw other people saying. And I'm like, I've never had a problem deploying a scatterplot 
But I always, you know, annotate less and more, or I provide mm-hmm. additional contextual clues. And then I will also supplement with additional charts. So that way, when people are hovering over this piece, they're getting additional information about what it is. Mm-hmm. And all of that just, you know, it's that landmarking. It's the, you know, am I truly going the right way and deciphering this in the way that I should? Right. You know, we're coming out of the the Information is Beautiful Award, and I was fortunate enough to be able to judge a couple of the categories. And and the thing that came out for me this year was the writing around some of these longer scrolly telling pieces was just mm-hmm. really not that good. And it just, I think, reinforces your message here, which is the text in and around the graphs is just so important. And you, it, it's it's like another skill set that we as DataViz creators need to have. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we need to provide voice for it. Right. Right. I mean, this whole like three second rule thing or whatever, however many seconds people want to put on it. Right. Um, you know, I just, I, you know, if I showed you a bar chart with five bars and no text on it. It's meaningless. It's meaningless. Right. Exactly. So there needs to be some text around it and how much text and where you put it depends on all these factors that you've been talking about. Yeah, And it, it's sort of it's it goes back to the conversation metaphor. I mean, text is an effective way to ground the conversation. You you need to provide context so that people can be successful when they are having a conversation with others. And it's a very similar metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that the the parallels between the way I think we traditionally think about what language is versus data viz, which is a visual language. Um, and, And maybe we just haven't been thinking about it in kind of the, I don't want to say the wrong way, but we haven't really been thinking about it in sort of a, I don't know, a merged way. We've treated it as a pictorial representation and it's not. Yeah. It's a lot more nuanced than that. It's got a lot more systematic capabilities. I mean, we've seen that as far back as grammar of graphics and, Mm. you know, being able to formulate it so that you can construct a wide variety of visualizations, you know? And so to me, you know, moving into the next step of how do you construct these so that, you know, multiple charts are working together to have that conversation, integrating intent, because that intent piece, we really underestimate it. And then we really underestimate the semantic systems that allow us to express that message. Mm -hmm. So we've been going for a while and I feel like we could keep talking for a while. I do want to end on on one last thing, because at the, the last chapter of the book, you provide well, it's across several pages, but you provide essentially a big planning critique type grid. Um, and I was hoping you could talk just a little bit about what the grid is and how you thought about it, because it's different than some other ones I've seen out there. This is very binary. It's like, did you do this thing? Yes or no. Um, and I also am curious about how you've used it. Probably Bridget, I think the question is sort of different for each of you. Bridget, probably in your own work or in work with clients. And then Vidya, if you've used these sorts of things in, in teaching and yeah. how students have sort of reacted to that. So um, I don't know who to start with. Maybe, I don't, I don't know who wants to start about talking about Bridget, the, the grid itself. Bridget should start with, you know, how the whole thing came about and then- Okay, yeah. So yeah. for me, the book is, it's a, it's a big book. I mean, it, it, there is yeah. a lot there. And for me, sometimes there's that challenge of how do you take something very conceptual and put it into play? How do you do it? How do you make it work? And I love books like, you know, Switch by Chip and Dan Heath, where you can download a workbook. You can literally, you know, do this process. And so to me, that was a part of my model. And then I used to train and mentor interpreters. I did a lot of training. And so I actually took some of the materials from, you know, certification exercises 
and, you know, had actual, you know, training benchmarks. And I like the very Boolean yes or no, or it's not applicable in this case. So we've got this, you know, 108 point checklist, if you will, of, you know, did you do this thing or not? And if you give people a fudge factor of, well, maybe I did this thing, you end up with these really fuzzy numbers. And so I didn't want it to be a score because A, the score wouldn't be the same. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's, it's a false equivalency. I, I yeah. wanted to focus more on, yes, this thing was done. No, it wasn't. And these are literally the things I can either go fix or I at least need to have a reason for why I don't think I should do it. Yeah. And, and so it's more of a conversation piece than a grading mm-hmm. piece in my mind. Now I have, you know, I will say I have used it for grading. I've literally, you know, made it zero and one and I have occasionally put in a 0.5 just to evaluate maturities of organizations or to look at a workbook and say, this is where you are today and this is where you can go, you know, and particularly, you know, highlighting certain sections. So we've got it, you know, every chapter has parts pulled from it. And then we've also pulled in these triangles. So we have these landmark triangles calling out certain key points. And we've actually mm-hmm. put it right in the tool as well. So you can go back and find the thing that it references. So it's not just I pulled it out of a hat. You know, this is real and in the book. And truly, every point can be kind of tied back to something. And to your point, and then VJ, I want to give you, give you a chance to talk about too. But to your point about how a grid like this can be used, it's like any other skill, right? You could use it at the very beginning to be like, did I do this, yes or no, to a more nuanced thing as you become more experienced and you know, you're, maybe your data get more complex or something where there's gradients to all this. But yeah, I think, I think you're right on, Bridget, that like you've been talking about this whole hour, right? It depends on who the audience is, depends on your experience and how experience, you know, and all of these things that a grid like this you can use it to help grow and you might not, you know, you start today as a data visualization person who just learned whatever tool or Tableau or whatever it is, and you use it yes, no. And five years from now, you're like, well, I've expanded this. I've, I've grown it in very different ways. And now I, you know, I use a scale and I just, I'm focusing on different things. And you can see it by section, which to me is yeah. what's what key because you can trace it back to, I'm not using text enough. I'm, right. you know, my cohesion systems aren't, aren't there. Right, right. So VJ, I I wanted to give you a second here to talk about whether you've been using it in either research or teaching. Yeah, I think, I mean, actually in both. So, um, Hmm. so in research, we actually took a bunch of the, you know, these heuristics from the checklist and we kind of appropriated that to how to evaluate dashboards um, for facilitating what we call kind of a cooperative conversation between the dashboard by itself and and the user. And I, I hesitate to say reader because, you know, these dashboards are interactive right. and they're not static. Um, but most recently, um, I just came back from a, a wonderful trip to India and I I used um, a lot of the book as, as a textbook in class where I taught 60 students who had no background in data visualization, you know, over five weeks. And... I used the checklist for two main goals. One of them was most of these students, even though they did not have any formal training or any class on data visualization, were familiar with charts because of how prevalent these charts are, you know, Mm -hmm. as simple as looking at a map or looking at the news channel where they see like political information and trends. So I really wanted them to 
understand how to even critique visualizations that they see around them. When do you trust a visualization? How do you understand it? So we use the checklist or a modified form of that um, so that I could get them to kind of talk about the visualization and, and critique it in, in, a, in a way with some guidelines, right? Some guardrails. And as we moved along the course and as these students learned how to create their own visualizations, either using Tableau or D3, I got them to, you know, self-evaluate their own creations through the checklist. Mm. And given that they had done this exercise on other people's, you know, dashboards, they were familiar with the language and the expectations of the checklist to try it on themselves. And some of them as part of their final group project took existing dashboards, you know, identified certain places where they could improve the dashboard and then re-ran the checklist on their, you know, improved dashboards to see if it, it actually swayed the needle. And we found in general that, and I did this checklist uh, exercise even with practitioners um, out in the world beyond just students. And what we found was, you know, people were pretty good at understanding kind of basic graphic design when creating charts because there's so much prevalent literature out there. But you know, the use of icons, the use of semantics across charts, you know, thinking more deeply about color, thinking about the placement of text, uh, the use of scaffolds to guide, you know, the user in terms of where they should look at, being more thoughtful about which charts should be, you know, made larger and where they should be placed, I think were things that sort of came out when they looked at the checklist, which I thought was kind of fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what I like as a practitioner is a lot of times, you know, in the practitioner space, we provide feedback on our opinion, what we like, and it, it kind of becomes, yeah. I'm going to make you in my image. Yeah. And, you know, from an interpreting standpoint, you don't like that. I mean, you just, because you have a rendition, you have a reason for the rendition. And I like that this tool puts that control back into the author's hands. It lets yeah. you think about this is where the system is struggling and these are the things you can think about doing, but I'm not explicitly saying make this green, make that, you know, purple, you know, do this thing. This thing needs to be this size. I'm empowering the author to make those decisions so that they can take into account their intent and the semantic systems they want to leverage for this particular rendition. Right. And you'll notice I'm going to keep hammering the word rendition. Yeah. Because it's not, I mean, if you put, you know, seven chart makers together or seven, you know, data visualization people, you're going to have seven different yeah. renditions. And it's not that one is right and six are wrong. Yeah, right, right. Well, well, this was fantastic. Uh, not surprised. Great book. Love it. Uh, love where you're headed with this in terms of where you're you're providing, I think, a, a resource and service really to the data viz field to sort of help move us forward uh, in the way we should be thinking about data viz. So um, Bridget and Vidya, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for uh, staying longer than we had planned. I know I usually say like, oh, 25, 30 minutes, we'll just chat. But um, this was uh, so interesting. I, I couldn't I couldn't stop us. So, um, so thanks so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a lot of fun. And thanks everyone for tuning into this week's episode of the show. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you'll check out their book, Functional Aesthetics. Great book. Also check out the website. And of course, check out all the links in the show notes. There's a lot of stuff in there. So go explore it, uh, take a look. And of course, if you have a chance, 
go check out Partner Hero, the sponsor of this week's episode of the show. And if you'd like to support the show, please consider reviewing it on your favorite podcast provider. If you'd like to sign up for the Winnow app, you can do a free version, you could do a paid version. Or if you'd like to support the show financially, check out Patreon, PayPal, or any of the other ways that I am providing content and connecting with you. So until next time, this has been the Policy Viz Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. A whole team helps bring you the Policy Viz Podcast. Intro and outro music is provided by the NRIs, a band based here in Northern Virginia. Audio editing is provided by Ken Skaggs. Design and promotion is created with assistance from Sharon Satsky Ramirez. And each episode is transcribed by Jenny Transcription Services. If you'd like to help support the podcast, please share and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Policy of This podcast is ad-free and supported by listeners. But if you would like to help support the show financially, please visit our Winnow app, PayPal page, or Patreon page, all linked and available at policyviz.com.